I was definitely thinking of slow food when I came up with the idea of slow water. And, you know, there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, slow food is intended to draw people's attention to where their food comes from and how its production impacts the local environment and local communities. And similarly, um, slow water is also meant to draw our attention to, uh, yeah, how we relate to water and, and what that does to water systems and, and to the environment. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Water wins. Now, that's a provocative statement, and, and one I'm not going to argue with at all, but I've, I've got a guest today, Erica Guys. Erica, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. Erica, you you have a book that says Water Wins. You're a journalist. You live in San Francisco area. You care about nature. You're explaining it. You're telling the story of what's going on. Water. Not only do you say water wins, you say water always wins. And Erica, when I saw that, when I saw your book that said water always wins, you know, somehow, you know, what came to my mind was how you sometimes determine what who wins and who loses by doing rock, paper, scissors, right? You, even And then it gets down to choosing which restaurant you're going to or something. You do with some friends, you go to rock, paper, scissors. But if you could just add water, I'd always choose water <laughs> because, you know, so what? You've got paper that covers the rock or the, the scissors that cut the paper, but water can't be stopped. And um, I'm wondering how much you had to trip over those things as you were on your way to a title that took this body of work to tell the story of why it matters that water always wins. But how did you get to that point? How did uh, how did you this is a terrible place to start you, Eric, I'm, I'm afraid is <laughs> to start with a title and work backwards. But but well, it's, uh, but this, it's, it's an interesting you- thing to me. It's funny that you mentioned rock, paper, scissors, because there is, in fact, a line in the book where I say if water were a category in the game, paper, rock, scissors, water would beat them all every time. And, you know, it is a question of um, of, of time, you know, water wins sooner or later. Um, but the reason I came to this title, you know, the subtitle is Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. and I think, um, you know, climate change is a way that people, uh, or, or I should say water extremes like flood and drought are a way that people are experiencing climate change where they live and are understanding that climate change is here already. And so there's been a lot more attention uh, recently to these disasters um, but often in the dominant culture, our response is to, that we need more infrastructure. You know, our infrastructure isn't built to, to encompass these bigger extremes that we're seeing. So we need more reservoirs. We need, uh, bigger levees. <clears throat> and a major point of my book is that, in fact, 
it's not just climate change that's causing these disasters, but our development choices. And that includes urban sprawl, uh, industrial agriculture, and in fact, um, the kind of very concrete control oriented ways in which we try to manage water. Um, and that kind of, it reminds me of a, a joke I mentioned in the book uh, among water people, which is that there are two kinds of levees, ones that have failed and ones that are going to fail. So there's a recognition in that among people who work with water, that water is an incredibly powerful force and you know, has its own agency and is going to do what it wants one way or another. And we have had this perception that it's uh, somewhat malleable and that we can move it where we want. Um, but that has limits and we're, we're seeing those limits now. Boy, I tell you what, that statement couldn't hit home with me any more than because it happens that um, I live near a levee because I'm right on the American River in Sacramento, and the the Army Corps of Engineers has been hauling in mountains of, literally, of stones and all sorts of stuff, building up the levee, because they say, because of what we're looking at climate change and the changes and in going into a time of more extreme floods, um, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have a flood that exceeds the 1,200-year limit. And... Um, you know, I think I first saw that story about the size of these floods a few months ago. But by that time, you have been writing your book for quite a while, I would imagine, even mm -hmm. though the stories have been coming out. You saw a few more of them this summer, and maybe you even authored some of them. I'm not sure. But you were getting an early peak and an early reason to be concerned about that. Well, um, the modeling in terms of the really, really giant flooding um, in an arc storm, that's something that scientists have been working on, uh, I, I want to say, for like a decade. Um, so I was aware of that from my reporting generally. But also, if you just look at the history of California, um, you know, the Central Valley is a massive floodplain that historically flooded Parts of it flooded every year, um, and uh, the majority of it would flood every so often. So, I mean, that kind of arc storm is is an unusual occurrence, but not unprecedented. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the the Central Valley that we have today is, as one expert told me, the least wild landscape imaginable. And, you know, we spent the better part of 75 years trying to control the Sacramento River uh, and the San Joaquin. And as a result, we prevent it from reaching its floodplains. So there's a question of, so actually that levying contributes uh, significantly to not uh, having enough groundwater available. I mean, people are pumping groundwater when surface water is scarce, which is a little bit wrongheaded because they're actually the same water linked by gravity and hydraulic pressure. So in a healthy system where you have a high enough groundwater table, that's actually feeding surface water from below and feeding wetlands from below and um, making those streams run year round, which, you know, in the West, we tend to think of streams as seasonal, but in fact, a lot of them historically did run year round. So there's that impact. Um, the other is that levees are very inflexible and whether you make them out of, uh, you know, mud or 
stone or concrete. Um, you know, water is also moving underground and it can undermine them from underground, which is one reason why um, they are so prone to flooding. And so it's really a question of risk management. And there was a paper in 2014 that was called like the 10 golden rules of, of flood management or something like that. And number one is accepting that you cannot prevent all flooding. Uh-oh. And then number two is to accept some flooding as positive because you are giving water space um, and you are choosing ahead of time places for the water to slow where it is going to have a, a smaller impact on human infrastructure. And the Dutch have recently started doing this um with uh, levy setbacks, which also California is now incorporating that into uh, its statewide flood management. It's the recognition that you have to give the water someplace. And, you know, when you levy up, you are raising the level of the water in the river. Um, The Mississippi River has like 3,500 miles of levees and the flood uh, flood stage near St. Louis is 13 feet higher than it was 100 years ago. And, you know, this is also an environmental justice issue because not everybody can afford a levy and not everybody can maintain their levees to the same degree. And so when you're pushing that water up, you are increasing risk on other people. Um, so one way to do this, if you're setting back floodplains, you're giving rivers access to what, you know, floodplains exist to absorb floods. Um, and like, when you think of when I, when I say that our development has dramatically altered, you know, is, is a big factor in these disasters, it, it helps to think of the scale. So worldwide, we've actually eradicated 87% of the world's wetlands. And we've intervened with dams and diversions in two-thirds of the world's largest rivers. Uh, So it's absolutely massive impact that we're having. The area covered by our cities has doubled just since 1992. And that's like pavement and asphalt so the water can't soak into the ground, which causes flooding in the short term and water scarcity in the longer term because you're not conserving that rain that falls locally. So, you know, in all of these ways... Uh, basically the, the water detectives, the people in my book are looking for ways to return water's slow phases, wetlands, floodplains, meadows, where water can slow on the land and move underground and heal that groundwater surface water connection. Let let me stop you there for a second. So when you talk about moving that water underground, um, there's more attention lately in talking about recharging the aquifers. And the um, we've got a pretty big one under Sacramento, but then you've got the Ogallala back and covers what six, seven states or something like that. And 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 I I would imagine is is that going to be as there's more attention paid on how you can do that um, to try to recharge these these aquifers. Uh, is that going to help redirect some of this this water that's coming from? floodplains that have been levied and they got to move somewhere that they can find a spot to soak it and some i don't know how we're going to get it and how we get it down to the aquifer and unless it just sets somewhere um long enough um yeah help me yeah. with that so so uh recharge groundwater recharge involves uh humans helping water move underground by finding spaces where it can sit on the earth long enough to soak underground 
Or you can also do it through injection wells where you're kind of pumping it underground at a mm -hmm. higher pressure. And that's sometimes used in cities. Like I think about um, San Jose, for example, um, people don't realize, but more than a hundred years ago, uh, the land of San Jose actually fell about 13 feet. And that was because so many people were growing fruit trees in the area and were pumping out groundwater to water them. And so the, the geology kind of deflated and the city sank. And so, um, that area has been doing recharge for a long time. Similarly, Orange County had a similar problem with, uh, agriculture and has been recharging for a long time. Um, but what's being talked about now in the state is much wider scale. And there has been some discussion of like trying to recharge on farm fields, but that can be, uh, challenging in terms of, you know, you need to have, the fields available to hold water at the time that the big rains come. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a crop growing there um, or if it's in a delicate state, like maybe it can't be flooded at that time. Another issue is pollution. You know, people use fertilizer and nutrients um, and pesticides on farm fields. And so if you're putting water on the field, you know, shortly after you've applied those elements, then you can be moving that pollution down into the groundwater where it's very, very hard to remove. So things that people have been looking at more recently are these levy flood, uh, levy setbacks that I'm talking about. So we've, we've built a lot of, um, cities and houses and farming on floodplains because it was nice flat land with access to water. But sure. in fact, those floodplains are needed um, to recharge the water. So when I talked about controlling the Sacramento and the San Joaquin and not allowing them access to the floodplain, that's a lot of natural recharge that's not happening because we're not allowing that water to spread out and slow on the land and move underground. So um, by setting back the levee, you can still have a levee that's protecting what's behind it, but you're giving the river more space to do that. And there's some, been some really interesting studies too about um, fish health because a lot of important biological processes happen in the slow water on the floodplain. Algae grows there, plankton come, fish who spend time on the floodplains are 12 times fatter, according to some research by Jacob Katz, um, and therefore healthier and stronger. And then that water is going to move into the river more slowly. So the river is going to be more full into the dry season. So in that sense, you have the same water helping fish and then later farmers. So it becomes not a fish versus farmers, but a fish and farmers kind of solution. Um, and then another thing is I've been writing about this in my book and uh, in Scientific American more recently and in Bay Nature last January. There's some really interesting research um, that a hydrogeologist called Graham Fogg at UC Davis has been working on for about 40 years, but it's finally kind of coming to fruition, which is that um, there are these special kinds of aquifers called paleo valleys, and these exist kind of right along the foothills of the Sierra. Um, so... They were carved by glaciers, by the glacial cycle. Um, when the glaciers were there, the rivers were much stronger. They carved these very deep and wide valleys through the Central Valley, through the floor of the Central Valley. And then later in the glacial cycle, 
they've filled with um, big cobble and rocks. And so that means they're extremely porous. The water can move through them very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the most recent ones that were formed about 10,000 years ago are really close to the surface, like maybe just a meter or two underground. So the idea is if you can find these paleo valleys and if you can set them aside for recharge, then when you get a big atmospheric river storm, you can move that water atop this land where it's going to, because that's part of the problem when you get so much water at once, um, you know, reservoirs become full, it's hard to know where to put it. Um, and so people just sort of like, get it off the land out to the ocean as quickly as possible. But if you can move it atop the paleo valleys, it will move underground very quickly. And then about 65 to 80% of the Central Valley is clay. And clay is what's called an aquitard, which means that water can move into it, but much more slowly. Um, and so if it's underground in the paleo valleys, then it can seep more slowly into the clays and raise the water table over a wider area. And that's important because, um, you know, with the, with SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, uh, local people in their water basin um, need to come up with a plan to manage their groundwater sustainably or else the state is going to step in. And so these groundwater sustainability agencies are coming together and trying to figure out how to do this. And they're very interested, all of them, according to uh, people I talked to at the Department of Water Resources, in doing recharge. Because if they are grabbing that extra rain when it comes and helping to heal this groundwater surface water connection, then that means that that groundwater will be available for them to use um, later if, if they need it. So it's an interesting it's an interesting time right now in California. Well, let's go beyond California because there's some, I've got a lot of people listening to the podcast are from literally all over the world. I read a book not long ago that was about the Mississippi River and back in the, the uh, you probably even know the name of it, but I can't right now, but it's a, but. Is the, it called Rising Tide? By, yeah. Uh, yeah. Barry? Yeah. That book is amazing. It's a great book. Yeah. Uh, but by contrast here, we just had what this summer. Uh, the Mississippi was was so short of water, there's barges stuck there. And, you know, it it's surprising that there wasn't more attention paid to that because the grains that needed to move out of the Midwest, because draining from the Mississippi and the Missouri and everything, what, like 10 states or something like that? And you had barges that weren't making it down to the to the mouth of the Mississippi, down at, around New Orleans, to to send to Africa for, you know, where they needed more wheat and they needed more staple grains and so forth, literally around the world. It's as bad as, you know, looking at the at the, the train situation the, um, that's been in the news more recently than that. So can you pretty much take the world and get a map of the world or a globe and just as you've described what's going on in California, is it pretty much happening all over? Is there any anyone that's getting a pass on this that's saying we don't have to worry so much about about what water is going to what's happening to water? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think anybody <laughs> oh, that's a short answer. That. Good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, since I've become really attuned to this subject over the last several years while I've been writing this book, I 
you know, I keep files of oh, another flood, oh, another drought, you know, I mean, it's happening everywhere around the world every day. Um, and, you know, part of that is climate change. And, uh, you know, there are things that we know we need to do to, um, to address that in terms of reducing fossil fuels and emissions. Um, but these issues are, yeah, we see them in not enough water uh, for shipping. We see them in not enough water for hydropower. Um, this is a particularly acute situation in countries in Southern Africa where, uh, you know, they rely on hydropower for 90 some percent of their electricity. So when these big droughts come, the whole economy kind of has to shut down. And, um, you know, for a while, that was uh, an argument in energy circles where, well, hydropower is uh, reliable, um, mm. but that's not necessarily true. And so I think, you know, we're reaching these tipping points and some of it is climate change. Some of it is human population. You know, we just passed 8 billion. And like I said, the area covered by our cities has uh, doubled just since 1992. And, you know, that means more resources where actually uh, humans have impacted 75% of the, the land area. Um, and so things that we did in the past that might have worked um, are hitting these tipping points uh, as we're sort of pushing these systems to the brink. So what's really exciting about these slow water projects is that um, they have more flux. You know, you're not trying to get maximum efficiency. We, we have this tendency in the dominant culture to look at water as either um, a commodity or a threat. And that's a very human-centric way of looking at it. It's all about what do we need. Um, but not every culture in the world looks at water that way. Some of them think of water as an entity with agency, as uh, a relative, as a friend. And the, that lens um, brings to it an awareness of water's relationship with the soil and rock, with microbes, with beavers, with humans, and all the ways in which those systems interrelate. Um, you know, humans are, in fact, animals, a uh, part of nature. Um, and in the dominant culture, we've kind of separated ourselves from nature, and that doesn't allow us to kind of understand the negative consequences of our sort of single-minded focus problem solving. So I think slow water, you know, there are many aspects to the water cycle from even like forests contributing significantly to rain generation. So, you know, when you cut your forests, your, your springs dry up and you have less rain in the, the local water cycle. Um, so slow water projects, I think, are really exciting at this time because they are a way for people to take action in their own communities with their neighbors um, to help make the, the water systems more resilient by making more space for slow water. And there's also a climate mitigation component, you know, um, wetlands of various kinds uh, store significantly more carbon than forests. Um, so the extent to which we can help to recover and restore these ecosystems, there's a lot of uh, benefit in terms of, of reducing actual climate change, not just adapting to it. And I think that's something that often gets lost in these climate conversations. It's great that people are focusing more on getting off fossil fuels, but 25% of our emissions are from land use change. 
And these kinds of slow water projects are uh, a significant way to address that and um, to empower people locally. You know, one of the things I remember reading about not too long ago was the impact on lack of snowpack. Because when you start dumping all this water and it comes in, in rain, like all of a sudden and bursts, not spread out generally, and you've got and you've got heat, and so you've got a hotter climate, and you're not forming these snowpacks, which are beautiful. I mean, when you've got, you know, 12, 20 feet in some places of snow in the mountains, it just kind of melts and comes down the rivers over a period of six months or something like that. Versus if it comes in a rainstorm and it's too warm to form snow, you you mean uh, that's getting a lot worse. And I would imagine that happens in many parts of the world, that, that yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, I think something like 2 billion people, don't quote me on that, but that's what I remember, um, around the world rely on mountains for their water. Um, and in Kenya, for example, there's actually a national water towers um, uh, agency that is focused on trying to protect um, these these water towers that provide water to almost all Kenyans um, by making sure that deforestation isn't happening by replanting forests where that has happened and by introducing more um, sustainable agricultural practices. But there are a lot of ways that slowing water on the land can help to replace this missing snowpack. So one that I think about is beavers. Uh, you know, before people killed a lot of beavers for hats, um, North America was a significantly wetter continent. And there are also, there's also a species of beaver in, in Europe and the United Kingdom. Um, like 10% of North America's landmass was beaver created wetlands. And so, um, you know, beaver ponds, there was uh, an interesting study that showed that in their first year, they stored 75 times more water above and below ground than in streams without beavers per, uh, was it 100 meters of stream. So, you know, exponentially, if you let the beavers come back throughout the watershed. Um, so that is one way to make that water available to heal. That's that's why I talk about the surface groundwater relationship. Like when you have a healthy, full groundwater system, it can supply that water um, throughout the dry months as well. And then in other parts of the world, you see traditional practices like um, there's a chapter in my book focused on South India. And in fact, people across India innovated ways to, because most of their water comes during the monsoon, which is just a few months of the year. And then they have a long dry season, similar to California. And so um, in South India, they had something called the Eri system. That's E-R-I-S. And basically it means tank or water body in Tamil, which is the, the local language in Tamil Nadu. And uh, when the British came, uh, they estimated there were 53,000 eddies across the landscape from the, the mountain that kind of runs north-south down to the Bay of Bengal. And these are all connected to each other um, and also linked to rivers and streams uh, in places where they exist on the surface. So it's not just like building a pond to capture irrigation water. They're actually inserting themselves into the local hydrology and helping to slow that water and to boost that um, water table 
and and therefore have that water available to them throughout the year and also uh, to wetlands. So there are many, many um, strategies around the world for slowing water on the land. And you see this in agricultural practices in, in India, in Kenya, in Peru. Um, and there's there's no reason that people in North America can't do some of that as well. You know, as you speak, I remember many, many conversations about industrialization of agriculture and then people that are critical of some large companies that think all they want to do is is maximize their returns and their and their profit at whatever it takes. And and it seems when I hear you talk about water the way you are, it reminds me the way people talk about their criticisms of industrialization. So that if you've got a certain space, if you can put, uh, you know, 500,000 chickens in that space, well, it'd be better if it could be 500,001, you know, <laughs> just, uh, you know, and, and so to me, I, I hear this kind of uh, undercurrent, if you will, of, of when's enough's enough. I mean, slow down, think about it, take a little longer. You know, don't get the maximum drops you can out of everything. Don't try to manipulate everything so aggressively that you're, you know, maximizing, but you give space that you're patient with the earth, that you can have uh, these wetlands and you can, the other things you're talking about. And and so I'm wondering if you're going to put another subheading, if you could do something along the lines of, uh, hey, slow down, hey, <laughs> let's let's do this right. And that's why it's taken me a while to hear you talk about the uh, slow water, but I but I like it. You know, yeah. it reminds me like the slow food movement. You know, and, yeah, and, I mean, and the same thing. I was definitely thinking of slow food when I came up with the idea of slow water. And, you know, there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, slow food is intended to draw people's attention to where their food comes from and how its production impacts the local environment and local communities. And similarly, um, slow water is also meant to draw our attention to, uh, yeah, how we relate to water and, and what that does to water systems and, and to the environment. So slow water innovations are unique to each place and they work with local communities uh, and cultures and geology and ecology rather than trying to control or change them. Um, it recognizes water as an entity with agency. So that kind of systems thinking um, and like you said, like not maximizing every last drop. And, you know, I'll, I'll just backtrack to say that there's, it really gets back to a fundamental problem in our dominant economic system, which is that um, all of these services provided by ecosystems, uh, clean water, pollinators in the form of insects, um, you know, flood control, water supply, all of this uh, is provided by healthy systems, and yet it's not accounted for in our economic policies. You know, these are externalities, right? They're taken for granted. And if they are harmed, um, usually the people who are profiting from harming them are not paying. Um, often it's the environment and other, other than human beings or, um, you know, 
marginalized people who who are paying for that. And so, you know, again, these things are just not sustainable in the long term. Um, if if they ever if they ever were, um, but we're seeing the limits of that. And more and more systems are starting to break down. Um, you know, biodiversity is crashing. Uh, people in some places are having to pollinate crops by hand, uh, by human hands, because there aren't insects to do it. Um, and, you know, even how water scarce we feel in the West, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of water available, but we're wasting a lot of it. And yeah, we're allocating it potentially where it, it it shouldn't be going, um, which is a bit of a judgment call, but, you know, it is also an environmental justice issue. You know, we, we tend to think like, oh, we don't have enough water. We need to bring it from somewhere else. Like let's build, let's build a dam. Let's, you know, make another reservoir, maybe, you know, let's desalinate. Um, but in fact, you know, those interventions like, uh, big dams and reservoirs, over a 40-year period, brought water to 20% of the world's people, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's people. So, you know, taking it from somewhere else has consequences. It has consequences certainly on the ecosystems that you take it from, but it also has consequences on on other people. And there's a really interesting field called sociohydrology, which looks at how humans affect water supply. Um, and how, uh, how water affects people. And, um, it's a very well documented phenomenon of this kind of, um, boom and bust cycle. So similar to when you have a lot of traffic and you think, oh, we need more lanes on the freeway. So you build more lanes and then everybody's like, oh, look, the freeway is so big now. Why don't we drive? And then you have gridlock all over again. You see that again and again with water, um, where, development of population industry and agriculture expands to absorb whatever new supply is brought in and then you have an issue of scarcity again and then that those people are more vulnerable i want to go back to energy for a minute because where the dams do exist and the idea of as i understand it when we're making electricity you force water through these turbines and somehow magically electricity comes out which has some would argue because of that, if they build a dam just for that, that might be an issue. But many would say that's better than if it's burning coal, but perhaps not as good as wind and solar. But there's, it is a part of the system right now. I don't know how, how big is it that hydroelectric sources for electricity. Do you have an idea? Yeah, I mean, it's different, uh, different percentages in different parts of the world. Um, in some places like Southern Africa, it's almost all of the electricity. Um, in places like the US, uh, don't quote me. I want to say like maybe 10 to 25%, depending on where mm-hmm. you are. Um, mm-hmm. so it is, it is significant. Um, however, it's, uh, not true that hydro is, uh, emissions free power. Um, first of all, um, concrete is sure. uh, something like 8% of all emissions. It's incredibly intensive industry. And a lot of that goes into dams. And then uh, when you flood an area and all of the um, plants die, uh, there's a massive methane release, which is worse in tropical ecosystems, um, but uh, significant elsewhere. And in, there have been studies that show that it can take a decade or more um, to kind of make up that carbon debt 
uh, to where you're actually producing clean power. Um, and, 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 and then that if, if you have water expanding and contracting, it can continue to release methane. And it just has such a huge impact, um, on the environment and also people. Like I think of the, the Mekong river, uh, which runs through Southeast Asia and something like 60 million people, um, are subsistence fishers and get most of their protein from that river. And there's a massive dam building boom that's happening there right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, actually Cambodia put a moratorium on dams on their stretch of the Mekong because they realized that uh, it was going to be incredibly expensive for them to try to figure out how to feed all these people who had been feeding themselves uh, off of the fish from the river. So um, yeah, that's a little bit of a a sidebar from the uh, energy footprint of dams, but it is significant. And also just, it's not the reliable source that people had been thinking of it as. Um, one more thing, it, it's not just hydropower. It's also things like um, nuclear and gas plants. A lot of those are built on rivers and are cooled by rivers. And when you have dropping water levels and increasing temperature, the river can no longer cool it. So um, part of the problem with some of the heat waves in, in Europe, for example, but also in the southern U.S. and many places is that nuclear plants and uh, sometimes gas plants, other plants have to shut down if they um, can't get enough water from the rivers for cooling. Uh, so that's another way in which um, water and energy are, are connected in what's called the water energy nexus. You know, one thing that is encouraging about these slow water projects is it's a question of scale. So I think sometimes when people talk about nature-based solutions, they think, well, you know, that's nice. Um, you know, we'll bring a little bit more nature into our city, but they don't think that it can be a significant part of the solution. But it really is a question of scale. And if you think of that 87% of wetlands that have been eradicated by humans, you start to understand why we need to look for opportunities throughout the watershed to give small pieces of land back to water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it adds up similar to the way that solar panels on everyone's roof add up to a significant amount of electricity. If you're making small spaces for water throughout a watershed, every every little bit helps and it kind of has an exponential impact to reduce scarcity and make water available. And because the, you can do some of it, you can do a piece of it on a small part of land, there are a lot of opportunities, um, you know, to, to, to start small and then grow from there. I'm still thinking about slow water and comparing it to slow food. Now, when I believe I want to support the slow food movement, I have some ideas of what to do. I don't know what to do if I, well, I have a better idea after talking to you. But but for those folks that say, okay, I get it. I'm all about slow food. And I know the restaurants I go to. I know the farmer's market I shop at. I know what I'm looking for as far as packaging and who's involved and scale of operations and all this sort of thing. It's a little harder to get your arms around saying, okay, I, I get it. I see this. So what do I do? Is there mm -hmm. something that you can do as a as an individual that says yeah, okay yeah, i definitely. get it now what what can i do so um i kind of 
derailed myself from my slow water manifesto as I was uh, <laughs> laying out the various uh, elements of slow sure. water. And the last one is community responsibility or engagement. And um, so some of the projects I saw around the world, uh, like people in India and the city of Chennai, uh, or people, communal farmers in the Andes Mountains of Peru, um, these people are working actively to maintain these slow water uh slow water systems. Uh, so they work together on that. And then they also share the water communally. Um, so that's a very hands-on approach. Um, and it's kind of hard to imagine that in a place like the United States or Europe, where water management is so centralized and handled by experts, but there are different degrees. Um, so one thing, if somebody is a homeowner um, or is a renter whose landlord is friendly. Um, there are things you can do in your own yard, you know, getting rid of lawns, which are basically ecological deserts and use far too much water. Lawns are the largest irrigated crop in the United States. And it's basically dead space in terms of the environment. So if you're replacing that with native plants, plants that are native to your area, um, they are adapted to the water that comes. So they shouldn't need extra water. And they also support uh, all kinds of habitat for pollinators and birds and, and other animals. Um, so, and, and there are various ways that you can, um, infiltrate water into the ground in your own yard. Now, some of that depends on the soil and the geology beneath you, but there are things that people do like dry wells, which are basically making uh, a hole in the ground that then the water can soak into and then move into the ground from there. There are bioswales, which are like vegetated ditches that you can direct rain to. Um, you know, you can root the rain gutters uh, into these things that you create on your land. So that's one thing you can do very locally. Um, there are many opportunities to get involved uh, in your town or city um, by going to city council meetings and talking to people, decision makers about ways in which they're managing uh, the local water resources that you have. And some of that is um, so most cities developed around streams and rivers, and a lot of them have been filled in and buried or put in pipes and buried. And the ones that remain on the surface are often you know, cut into straight channels and armored with concrete. None of those are good <laughs> for slow water. Uh, and increasingly, uh, people are understanding that um, unearthing these and making more natural water spaces are ways to absorb local flooding and also make more water available later. And then if they have an issue with endangered salmon, for example, this can be another way to help them and to create really lovely spaces that people that people love. Um, and there are opportunities in uh, places like where industry was alongside rivers and then has moved on and it's become kind of a derelict site that people in the community can get involved with, um, you know, helping to restore. And, you know, one thing is, I think people think that cities are really built up. And so oh, we have no space for water. But in fact, things change over in a city a lot more frequently than we realize. And so some people are doing something called historical ecology, and cities are doing this, but also just people who are passionate and individuals who are passionate about it, and basically mapping where all of the historical wetlands and streams were in their city. 
And the benefit of that means that, uh, you know, you're, you can advocate for your city to adopt that as a hundred year plan. And the idea is like, if this building is flooding or if it has some other issue and you're going to tear it down and it's built on top of a wetland, you know, maybe we won't authorize another building there. Maybe we will then set that land aside to absorb stormwater. So there are many, many ways that, uh, people can get involved. And I think, you know, the reason I wrote this book is I just want, the general public um, and and decision makers to understand that these kinds of projects are are happening. There are examples of how they work. There's a lot of science being done that shows that they work, and that they have so many co benefits. So if you're doing, you know, a cost benefit analysis based on one thing, which is you know just reducing flooding, for example you're missing the big picture of all these other things it does, like storing carbon, like anchoring topsoil, reducing the need for fertilizers, um, reducing the need to try to rebuild land artificially. Uh, so if you look at all of these co-benefits of these projects, um, you can see really how cost-effective they are. Well, and you share these observations in a book you're writing uh, articles. You're actually also going to speak at uh, Eco Farm, and hopefully people will go to uh, Eco Farm and hear you hear you're speaking there. And if they happen to miss it, and I believe Eco Farm will be keeping the video up, so they can go to the Eco Farm website perhaps afterwards and be able to see your presentation if they happen to miss it. And if people are looking for your book. Remind them. I imagine most people have their ways of going to an independent bookstore or Amazon or somebody. Um, I, my website that I've created for my book is called slowwater.world. And um, on that, you can find links uh, to where to buy the book. Uh, it's currently available in the US and in the UK. And um, so I have the the publishers there and then links to other um, other book retailers, uh, but certainly like you can go into any independent bookstore and ask them for it. Um, and if they don't have it, they can probably order it for you. Um, there's also uh, ebook versions and audiobook versions, and it's going to be published in China, which I'm pretty excited about. No, that's, that's exciting. Well, I'm looking forward to getting an audio version of it. And when I'm walking along my levee, it's going to I'm going to be reassured, though, as I, I've been thinking this. It's been in the back of my mind the whole time we're having this conversation that I, I can almost look out my window and see the levee. But one thing the Corps of Engineers is doing is expanding the plane hugely. They're creating, they're planting trees, they're putting rocks, but they're making it really, really wide. So normally the river would be about the, the width of the bridge or something, but they're making it like 10 times longer than the there's a lot, a lot of space to hit, let the water go out and percolate, I'm hoping. But yeah. I'm going to go to one of these meetings and I'm going to ask them good questions and say, I, are you kidding? I spoke to Erica. In the case they, <laughs> and they, in the case they say, well, how did Erica get into all this? I didn't ask you that question as we wrap up because you've really put yourself into this and you've been working on this book. But what led you to be, first of all, a journalist and decide that you wanted to focus on on water for a few years yeah um i i love reading and writing so that's how i was drawn to journalism um 
And, you know, I think journalism is a great way that you can communicate with the public at large about things that you think are important. And, uh, you know, I grew up doing a lot of camping and hiking, so I've always uh, cared about the environment. And I grew up in California where water availability has always been a concern. And so I, I had a water awareness pretty early on. And, um, and yeah, as so when I was reporting on science and the environment, uh, I, I was quickly drawn to water and the, the many stories and issues around that. Um, just before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to two people who are going to be on the panel with me at EcoFarm, and that is Jacob Katz, who I mentioned earlier. And uh, he is a fish biologist and um, has done some really, really interesting research um, in conjunction with uh, farmers, which I think he's going to talk about. And Don Cameron, who is a grower of uh, Terra Nova Ranch, um, which is in near the Kern River. And he grows almost exclusively with groundwater. And so he was a real pioneer in recharging groundwater on his fields. And uh, so he'll be talking about that. So I think it's going to be a really, really interesting discussion. It is. Don's a friend of mine. I've known him for, for years and he does a tremendous job and and he's a lar larger scale operation. And I think it's good to show that these things can be done, uh, not just uh, small, local, totally organic. He's got a range of his production systems, but he does a really good job. And I was glad to see he's going to be joining you on that panel. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. And like I said, if people happen to miss it, they don't get to EcoFarm. I think they'll have an opportunity to catch up later on. I'm excited about what you're doing. I won't be the only one, but uh, there are people listening to this who will feel like I do and said, huh, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Who was it as we wrapped this up? We started off with rocks, paper, scissors. <laughs> it was the Chinese philosopher that said if you're going to uh, model yourself after any element, make it water. Right. Uh, yes. I don't know who that was. Sun Tzu or something. I always get that pronounced Possibly. wrong. I think T-S-U. And I always was intrigued by that. And it's kind of like saying, you know, there's a lot of people that said, well, I want to be like a bear. Or I want to do this, this, and this. And he said, be water because nothing ever stops water. <laughs> um, it has a mind of its own, if you will, I'm mixing okay. metaphors all over the place. Uh, but you're helping, I think, you're helping us get our arms around something that's tricky to understand, but should give us pause and, and you give us some examples of what we can do in our own yards, let alone our own counties and our own cities and our states and our countries around the world. So I want to thank you. Thank you, Erica Guys, for being on Farm to Table Talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I hope that uh, your listeners will come away with uh, the inspiration to, to get more curious about water and, and what water is doing in their own areas. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 